You're listening to the Transcendent Farmer Podcast with Emily Reno, created to inspire and empower the next generation of land stewards. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Transcendent Farmer Podcast. I didn't necessarily introduce myself in the first episode, so I apologize for that, and I feel like maybe I should back up just a few steps to give you some context here on maybe myself a little bit and also what I'm trying to build. And then I have some timely updates with regards to the interview that you'll be listening to today, just so that you have a sense of what things have changed since that initial recording. So my name is Emily Reno. I am a Lawrence, Kansas native and a Minnesota transplant. I would also consider myself a digital nomad um, about to embark on a rather large international adventure, which I'm quite excited about. But yeah, Mezclada started back in 2020 as an idea when I was still in grad school. I had a pretty good sense of my personal brand and my values, but I wasn't 100% sure about how I wanted to be serving the farming community, building my own farm, and really what my place was within the food systems space. At the time, I was studying urban and regional planning focused on food systems planning, and I knew I wanted to be located in a rural community. So I did that for about a year and a half after grad school, and at the same time continued to build out an idea, sort of borrowing from other online courses that I had taken, my own personal experiences. I had gone through, at that point, three beginning farmer training programs myself, worked on many farms part-time over the years, and really found that the missing link for me was in all of these episodes of you know podcasts that I was listening to all of these ideas related to spirituality manifestation personal growth and development taking those ideas and then applying them in my life that was really where I was starting to see results but not necessarily from these training programs I had a really good sense of the foundational elements of a business plan basic principles behind how you take care of soil and didn't really feel like I was taught how to take care of myself. And that's where this business was really born, was thinking about taking a radically holistic and preventative approach to business development for farmers and also building community that supports people in their mental health kind of long term. And I think also just like thinking a little bit more innovatively about how we design businesses from the start so that we're able to even out cash flow, like making them, you know, financially profitable and sustainable in the long term. That's something that all farmers really struggle with and thinking about how they're diversifying their income streams. So this is something that I'm hoping to bring into online education for farmers and building out a learning platform of sorts and I'm gonna be launching different offerings inside of that based on my own experiences, hopefully bringing in some experts in their own right who can really speak to some of these issues and offer some resources and tips and practical habits and skills for all of you. But that's just a little bit about myself and really who I'm trying to serve with this is minority farmers. And I use the term minority sort of loosely to encompass historically underserved communities, including women, veterans, 
persons with disabilities, Native America, Alaska, Native, communities of color, young and beginning farmers, LGBTQ plus farmers, and more. If you feel like you haven't had your voice heard before, like this is the community for you. That's us. I consider myself a minority in a lot of ways. It's really confusing being a very white Mexican American and not having grown up in a lot of that culture. And so it's weird. It's a strange body to be in, but it's opened really interesting doors. And I do not take any of those opportunities lightly. I think it's really important to invest in my community in the way that many, many people have invested in me over the years. And so much of what I want to build is on this foundation of service. Service to the wider community, opening places for new voices, especially when it comes to farmers that don't look like everyone else. I think there's room for us, right? And that's what this is all about. So with that, I just want to introduce the episode with a little bit more context on the, I guess, the funding landscape and the legislative changes that have happened since that recording took place. So it's been really exciting. The Emerging Farmers Office with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture was established fairly recently. It's quite innovative, I would say, in terms of national food policy. Like you look at Minnesota and it's pretty cool, the stuff that's going on here. And so basically this office was founded to kind of support and expand the work of the Emerging Farmers Working Group. And you'll hear a little bit more in this episode about what that is and what they've done. But I think what I really want to share is just the updates with regards to a particular funding source that is mentioned within this um, episode. And that's called the Down Payment Assistance Program. So that is through the Minnesota Department of Agriculture with the Rural Finance Authority. And there's a few things that I wanted to mention. The first is that they are no longer doing this program on a first come first serve basis. They've actually switched to a lottery system. So their applications at the moment, it says that by law, it needs to stay open for a full month. So people will have, you know, 30, 31 days to be able to get their application in. And then they'll stop accepting their applications. Everyone is assigned a number. They're put in to some, you know, randomized order. And then the grants are awarded that way with preference being given to emerging farmers. So that same group that I had mentioned before, their target audience is the same as who I seek to serve as well. So basically they pull a number out of this list and they find that that farmer is not qualified as an emerging farmer. Then they'll kind of put them at the end of the list and then they'll keep pulling numbers until they get ones that match the eligibility criteria. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that there is no more dollar per dollar match on this fund. And that might be something that Jenny also mentions in this episode, that that's a change that has been made. The third thing that has changed is that there's an administrative shift in terms of the requirements after you receive the funding. So it'll talk about how you need to be able to close within 90 days, but that's actually different. So in the second round of the funding, they made an adjustment per feedback from the farmers, which is awesome. So they actually shifted that to six months. So you would have to purchase your farm essentially, or like make that down payment within um, six months of receiving your award. And they're going to be evaluating the timing for this third round of funding to allow for more flexibility. I don't know if it's going to be six months, if it's going to be closer to 90 days, but it's likely to be on a longer timeline just because that's what the farmers had really provided feedback of like, it's not realistic and it doesn't provide enough flexibility given the weird nature of 
sort of purchasing property. The last thing that I really wanted to share was that there is funding for the office that has expanded quite a bit. So there are now three full-time positions, plus some sort of support staff from other departments kind of administratively, but they now have three full-time positions, which is a really big deal. So Lillian was just hired as the director of the Emerging Farmers Office. You'll get to hear from her in this episode. And then they're going to be hiring for an outreach coordinator, which is basically a the position that she was in before. And then they will also be hiring for a grant specialist. And that was also a really big thing that I'm super excited about is when we think about all of the funding that is available right now at the federal level, there's a really big gap in terms of meeting that need with talented and qualified grant writers and also grant administrators. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm pretty sure you'll get a lot of value out of it, especially if you are interested in purchasing farm property yourself and you want to understand what resources are available at the state level in Minnesota to help you. Okay, welcome back everyone to another episode of The Transcendent Farmer. I am stoked because I've got not just one, but three amazing guests today. And all of them are with sort of within the ag space at the at the state level within the state of Minnesota. And we're going to talk a little bit about the work that they're doing, cool stuff that they're working on and opportunities that you can get involved in. So um, I'm just going to introduce them and then we'll dive into our questions here. So first up, we've got Jenny Heck, who is a program administrator for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture's Rural Finance Authority, which is the MDA, Minnesota Department of Agriculture's office for farm loans. And at RFA, Jenny manages Minnesota's beginning farmer tax credit and brand new down payment assistance grant. And Jenny's background includes farmers market management, horticultural production, and support for small scale and emerging farmers. Then after Jenny, we've got Lillian. And Lillian is the Emerging Farmers Outreach and Engagement Coordinator with the Commissioner's Office at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. She has also been serving as a public engagement liaison for the Office of Governor Tim Walsh and Lieutenant Governor Penny Flanagan. So on any given day, Lillian is navigating the spaces of community engagement, social intelligence, diversity, equity, and inclusion, diplomacy, and empathy. And then last up, we've got Patrice Bailey, who was appointed to the position of assistant commissioner in June of 2019. Um, Patrice oversees outreach, agricultural marketing and development, dairy and meat inspection, and food and feed safety for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Bailey is a native of Harlem, New York, and holds a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture Education from Prairie View A&M University in Texas, and has a master's degree in agriculture from Iowa State University. He has served the Twin Cities in several positions focused on bridging underrepresented communities of color to various available resources and advocating for them legislatively at the Capitol. So welcome, guests. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Happy to be here. All right. So I've got the first question, which I like to ask everyone, which is to tell me a little bit about your cultural background and a pivotal moment in your journey to the work that you do today. And I think we'll just have whoever wants to go first can can kick things off for us. 
I can start since I made these two join us on the call here today. <laughs> but this is Jenny. And so my my family, my parents are from like a small farm community in rural northern Iowa. But I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis. Ended up going to school at the U of M Twin Cities for horticulture. And that's how I got launched into this world of, you know, specialty crops, fruit and vegetable production. But as you mentioned, for the last 10 years, I've been at the Mill City Farmers Market, um, which really, you know, shaped the way I think about food and connected me to so many small farmers. And, and now I'm able to, you know, bring those relationships and what I learned about their experience as farmers to, to my work here at MDA. Awesome. Thanks, Jenny. And I, I can go next. So this is Lillian Otieno and I am actually, I am from Kenya. That is where I was born and raised and that's in East Africa. And I always say that I was partially raised in Kenya because I had to leave and go to college in Switzerland in Europe. And I studied international relations, international political studies, and hence maybe the diplomacy part of my journey and work. But then getting into a career, I found myself getting into the food business, first with Coca-Cola in in that bottling uh, area, but then later on into retail and manufacturing of food with various uh, companies. And actually, the Department of Agriculture was regulating my clients or my my charge here in Minnesota and so I that's how I got to work with uh, the Department of Agriculture after I did my graduate studies in in public public health so looking back coming from Kenya it's it's an agrarian community right I mean it's an agrarian environment my family does agriculture we have farms and you know whatnot and and that is synonymous to most people coming from those kind of communities but I, I was also thinking about this Emily and realizing that looking at my family also and, and the values that were instilled in me we're a very public oriented servant leadership type family due to a lot of other things and so I think service public service or service to community comes natural to me because that's what I've grown up seeing. And, and that is how, you know, my journey has led me to this. So I'm very passionate about equity and justice and making sure that everybody has a fair shot in whatever it is that they're planning on doing and especially in agriculture. And, and you know, I also am a community leader. I'm the president of the Association of Kenyans in America here. And it's the same vein of trying to make sure that, you know, as immigrants and new Americans, that we are able to harness the resources that are available, but also to have a fair shot. Absolutely. Thank you, Lillian. And then I will talk a little bit about my journey. This is Patrice Bailey in, in terms of coming from an urban city, growing up in Harlem, no agriculture in New York City. Everything is in New York State. There wasn't a real interest for me to go into agriculture. It wasn't until... I had a conversation with my mom about what I was going to do in my six months left in high school. And she had brought up, you know, you should do agriculture. And even then I had this negative connotation and thought of why would I want to work on a farm? And, you know, she kept saying it's so much bigger than that, but at the time I really couldn't see it. And so 
fast forward to where we are today, you know, I think she was definitely ahead of her time in advocating for such a field that allows so many people to think about not only where their food comes from, but also how to be able to grow the food and be entrepreneurial in their quest for being in this ag space. So it's just really a, a great time to be able to, anytime you can enunciate for other people that are not in the room, I think it's a good day. Awesome. Thank you, Patrice. So for context for listeners, we, so I guess a couple of us already know each other rather well, and that's because I have actually had the opportunity to participate in one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, which is the Emerging Farmers Working Group. And so I was hoping to um, get a little bit more information for the folks that are listening. What exactly is the Emerging Farmers Office? And then the Emerging Farmers Working Group and how is sort of what's the relationship between those two groups and maybe where does their jurisdiction stop? I think I'm going to I'm going to take a first stab at it in terms of flipping the question around in terms of jurisdiction and legislative need. The working group actually came out of a series of listening sessions in 2019 that we conducted around the state to find out, you know, what are the barriers uh, to entry, specifically in non-traditional underrepresented groups around the state. And so one of the recommendations in the 2020 legislative report that we turn in every January was to be able to create a working group. At the time, we had also talked about Instead of a working group, it would actually be a a board, but we got a working group. So May of 2020, the Emerging Farmers Working Group was actually signed into law by Governor Waltz. And, you know, one of the things that I always want to make sure that people know is that none of this has or will have been possible uh, if it wasn't for Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan and a lot of her support and a lot of her work and participation, not only in the listening sessions, but also in the halls of the legislative process. So for those who like to uh, look up the Emerging Formal Working Group, it's actually in statute 17.055 is the Emerging Formal Statute. And most of the things that, that came out of that is that, that the working group members would be able to, you know, advocate on a higher level. And, you know, after the 2020 uh, legislative report, the next report, which would have been last year, is was to be able to really sort of tie an, an office together. And interesting enough, the now chair represents Samantha Vane from Brooklyn Center, it was just a really a, a conversation. She had called me and said, if, if you had all the money in the world, what would that look like? You know, what, what would you wish for? Well, an office would be great to be able to really curtail all of the needs that emerging farmers are asking and have been asking about. And so, you know, it, it actually came, came through, but, you know, there's a lot of people that we do not often acknowledge behind the scenes that actually 
make a lot of these these amazing opportunities come to light. And so, yes, the the relationship between the two groups have some symbiotic relationship that uh, Lillian will talk about. But where the jurisdiction stops, it really doesn't stop because the working group is really to encompass anyone, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their ethnicity and where they came from, whether they were here, they came here, you know, from any part of the world, they were here yesterday or they were here 20 years ago. The jurisdiction is really to not have any barriers for those who are thinking about getting into agriculture. And so the reason why the office is so important is the fact that no jurisdiction allows supporting agriculture for all across the board. So with that being said, I, I'll just turn it over to Lillian to, to really put the fine tuning on as to the, how her work works directly with, you know, with the working group. Yeah, thank you, Assistant Commissioner. And before I say much, I just want to acknowledge you, Emily, because like you said at the top of the broadcast that you are a member of the Emerging Farmers Working Group. Uh, You're one of the inaugural members and you did a lot of work in that working group, as did your, your colleagues and peers. And so we're very thankful. And that is the reason why that working group is important, because that working group helps inform this office on how, what what do they, what is this office supposed to be? And so your team and others let us actually did design and speak out on what this office should be, which is working to make sure that the entire MDA is connected and recognizes that there are emerging farmers and those emerging farmers are impacted not just by this office, but by the other MDA programs. So my role is to make sure that that connection exists and to advocate for emerging farmers and making sure that our processes and programs and policies are also taking into account and consideration emerging farmers. And, you know, that's an indicative of, you know, some of the work that Jenny is doing that I'm sure she will be talking about later on, which was uh, also ideas and, and, and issues that were raised by the working group. And, and then we take this, we take some of those to the legislature and see whether, <clears throat> excuse me, those can be realized into opportunities, either funding or other things. But that relationship and uh, goes on and continues. And I make sure that uh, within the work that I do uh, in terms of coordinating this office is when we have a lot of these programs, like currently there's a lot of other programs we're working on, is bringing those voices of the emerging farmers to, to come in at the initial stage and, and help develop and help plan and, and help share that power, if you will, in the design of these processes and programs. And so far, some of the stats that maybe your listeners would be interested in knowing is this working group has so far had 33 members ever, ever since in its, its inception. Of course, they come in, in cohorts. We are at our third cohort and we've had folks representing 20 counties in these states. I think that's great. You know, we hope we, we're going to make sure that we, we have other counties represented as we move forward. And we hope that this working group will continue to exist and not necessarily sunset. So those are some of the things that we're hoping that we're going to advocate for with the legislature. And we just welcomed the new cohorts actually exactly about a month ago on the 18th. 
where we have nine more new people that have joined. And so I think it's like the assistant commissioner said, I don't think there is a place where their role stops and the office works. I think we work to make sure that we are addressing the needs of, of emerging farmers. Wow. Thank you both for that. I just think, first of all, thank you for the work that you are doing. And also, I just want to take a moment to recognize how unique this group is in general. If I'm correct, this is the only working group of its kind in the entire country. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. This is awesome and like wild to think about, you know, I I feel like I think about this all the time, sort of this idea of like, it's always relative, right? So like, for example, if you're in Vermont and, you know, you're surrounded by all these people who are like gung-ho, you know, like we're going to do the thing that's environmentally friendly and they always feel like it's never enough, right? And then you go to other parts of the country and you're like, whoa, Vermont's like way far ahead of where we're at. I feel like Minnesota in a lot of ways represents for me, like some of the more progressive stuff that's happening in the Midwest in general. It's just like, Minnesota is leading the way on a lot of, of policy as it relates to food. And that's actually one of the reasons why I was even drawn to going to school up here was because you look at stuff that's happening nationally and like the stuff that was coming out of the Twin Cities, at least in the research that I was doing in the food system space, it's like Minnesota is always up there in the top of like best ranked, you know, for the innovative things that are happening. And I feel like this working group is just one of those other things that is sort of added to the list of like, yeah, we should be looking to Minnesota as a model. So for anyone who's listening, that's not within the state, like check it out because there's some cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And it's a credit to our leadership, right? All the way from the top, you know, like the assistant commissioner said, our governor and lieutenant governor, the one Minnesota initiative, you know, that is what we're modeling this work that we're doing. And, you know, at my time at the governor's office working on public engagement, they, they walk, they actually mean this. And this is something that they are very interested in making sure that we are connecting with the diverse Minnesota populations, but also in terms of agriculture, that we are doing everything we can to make sure that everybody has access. You know, as we're having this conversation, you know, when I was with the governor's office, the lieutenant governor, you know, we went on a visit visiting farmers in Rochester, and we we keep getting all these requests and they keep, you know, having us uh, make sure that they know where these farmers are and and these farmers know that they're thinking about them and they're going to do whatever they can within the legislative process to make sure that those needs are addressed. So I think it starts from the top. And, and then, you know, all of us who are engaged in this work make sure that we're moving those policies forward, but we're also engaging with those communities. Definitely. And I think, you know, the other piece that I see as just like a huge benefit and something that I think about a lot in, in some of my work, sort of in the community development and like economic development space, is how are we creating these pipelines for leadership for people? And I think that farmers oftentimes, because they can be so just like wrapped up in, in the, the work of farming, finding this balance between like having a voice in these bigger places and then doing the work of actually growing the food can be super, super hard to balance. And, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like I, I had to skip, you know, a couple of meetings because I was bringing product to, you know, the farmer's market. And I try to be on the Zoom call, you know, while I'm harvesting flowers. But I think that that's like one of the most beautiful things about 
technology and the way that it is allowing people to engage from, like you said, across all of these different counties within the state is that you can call into the Zoom meeting and you can still have a voice and a seat at the table, even if you're not able to make the three hour drive, you know, to to the Twin Cities, for example. You know, Emily, you know, just to note that, you know, we have a, you know, legislatively, we have a lot of new legislators, both on the House and the Senate that are going to be uh, coming into this space. You know, many of those folks are actually be on the Ag Committee. The thing of why and how this is so remarkable is that I think it was like three or four weeks ago, there was a Minnesota Farmers Union had their convention in Minneapolis. And upon walking in there, the, the new incoming Senate Ag Chair's name is Eric uh, Putnam. He is a professor in St. Cloud. So he's the new person. And the first thing he said is that I'm really interested in the emerging farmer space. And so, you know, just think about what that synergy looks like. And then if you add on top of that, you know, we also have probably, in my opinion, the most diverse plate, license plate of its kind in the country that came out this year in February. So there's a lot of a lot of great things that are happening to really address emerging farmers, you know, breaking down the barriers across not just counties separating urban and rural, but I mean, you're looking at a an age shift as baby boomers are retiring and a new surgence of new emerging farmers from so many different walks of life that are looking to get into land and also into various agriculture sectors as well. Definitely. And I would say, you know, for anybody that's listening is interested in maybe participating or applying to be on this group, the meetings for this working group are open to the public. So even if you're just interested in listening in and learning more about how this group functions and what they're talking about, I feel like if I wasn't on the Emerging Farmers Working Group and I had just called in to the first like 12 months, I would have gotten so much value out of it, even not being a member that's serving. And they also, you know, they'll open it up usually for like a public comment or like if people have questions at the very end. So even if you are curious about something, there's still opportunities to, you know, ask questions. And and I think that's really important to recognize. It's like, you don't have to commit to necessarily still be participating and, and actively involved in this process. So I want to transition now to talking a little bit about this down payment assistance grant program that is new. Jenny, I know that you're kind of the expert um, on that for our conversation today. So tell us more about like, what is it? Who is it designed to serve? What's the eligibility criteria like? What should we know? Thank you. Yeah. So in the end of September, I was hired a new position to work on this grant program and another program, the beginning farmer tax credit that RFA offers. But so this one's really exciting to be part of the first time I heard of it, actually. I haven't even told her this, but Lillian was giving a talk at a conference in like June or July and she mentioned it. She mentioned they were going to be hiring someone. I was like, wow, that'd be cool. <laughs> so talk about manifesting. It, it happened and I'm, I'm really excited to be part of this program. But so it's the first of its kind, $15,000 grant for qualified farmers to purchase their first farm. It actually came out of the work of the Emerging Farmers Working Group and Emerging Farmers Office, who 
you know, identified land access as one of the top barriers for emerging farmers to succeed. And, you know, in addition to that, like Assistant Commissioner Bailey mentioned, you know, farm succession and legacy planning is also really important. And so working on on both land access and the other side of things at the same time, this, this program is really exciting. That's awesome. And I think that it's so cool to be able to have been part of the process of, you know, some of those initial conversations. I feel like when people start to get into sort of this policy space, they lose hope really fast because the results don't come right away. And so being able to see how, you know, feedback from this working group actually informed and created this program, like that's just awesome in itself. I think people would be really curious to know, like more specifically, some of the eligibility of this mm-hmm. and maybe even hitting on, because I know that you guys have had some public feedback sessions and you've had lots of questions at that. Like, what are some of the most common questions that you are getting about eligibility? Like where, where do things stop in terms of what you are allowed and like not allowed in terms of this grant? Yeah. So to be eligible, you must be an individual or a spouse, married couple. You need to be a Minnesota resident and the farmland you're purchasing also needs to be in within Minnesota's boundaries. As individual or your farm needs to gross less than $250,000 annually in agricultural sales. So we're focusing on smaller, small and mid-sized farms needs to be your first time or your spouse's time owning farmland. And that's what's kind of exciting about this program is that it really is for people getting a farm for the first time to facilitate that first purchase. Uh, and then the last, you know, big eligibility thing is that you need to commit to owning and operating the farm for at least five years. The A lot of common questions have been around all those eligibility things. You know, if, if your farm is not a sole proprietorship, if you are an LLC or partnership, uh, you can still apply. You would just need to purchase the land and apply for the grant as an individual, not as your LLC. It truly is down payment support. You will get the funding before the sale closes. So that is key and a big question. You can use it with an FSA loan with through the USDA or private bank or whatever you need to do. The listening sessions have been really popular. The program in general, I'm hearing from a lot of people. We're also hearing, you know, some concerns around timing and deadlines in the program and making sure it's accessible for everyone. You know, it's our first time with this program and we're learning a lot. Right now for this first cycle of funding that will begin January 4th, uh, you need to have your sale close within 90 days of being approved for the grant. And we know that that's a barrier for a lot of people. Often financing can take longer than that. Um, And so that was a concern we did here and something we anticipated since we know that that can be difficult. So that's something we're working on changing for future cycles and making it more accessible. And I think that's why these listening sessions, I've been to some conferences and other meetings too, just hearing that feedback from farmers is really important so we can, you know, do our best to serve people equitably. But some other key things to mention, I said, you know, that first 
funding session is starting January 4th, and that's uh, $500,000 going out in these grants. And so that's about 30 grants. We also have a second and third funding cycle that has been approved by the state legislation. And those will begin July 2023 and July 2024. They're going to be a, a year long instead of just six months. So we'll have more time for farmers to, to get the sales to happen and everything. And they're also for a little bit more money. So we have 750000 approved for the second and third cycle each. So that'll be about 50 grants each. That's awesome. So I definitely think for anyone who is listening and you've already been, I mean, most of the people that are kind of interested in this stuff, they have farming experience and they know like this is the thing that they want to be doing full time. And they're really just working on positioning themselves to be able to access that land and capital. And I just love the timing of this because I'm hoping that by the time this is published, we will be about halfway through a 60 day financial fitness challenge that I am currently hosting. And so, you know, every day people are taking action on getting themselves in in a better financial position. And I can't help but think that if people really engage in that work and take it seriously, that they will be able to position themselves to be able to access, you know, a funding opportunity such as this one. So it's really, really exciting. And the other thought that was coming to mind for me was just like thinking about because I'm always trying to think about these bottlenecks, right? Between all the retiring farmers that we have, farmland that's kind of like caught up in this system of transition, succession. And then you've got all of these people who are interested in farming, maybe didn't come from a farming background or family, and they're like trying to access that. So I'm curious in all of the listening sessions and stuff, and just thinking about maybe like outreach in general, has there been any work or initiative to be getting connected, not just to the emerging farmers, but like all of these farmers that are trying to retire right now? Yeah, that's a great question. We have been casting a very wide net with outreach, doing our best to hit up all the, you know, farmer groups and nonprofits that we're connected with and also, you know, reaching more broadly to, you know, places like Farmers Union and Farm Bureau and farm business management instructors out in rural counties who do that work with a lot of conventional farmers, business planning and and financial work, extension agents, even talking to some lenders that we know who are in the private financing and just really trying hard to connect across the state here with all kinds of farmers. Um, Yeah, the outreach has been a, a fun part of this work. And again, just learning more. You know, another thing I heard in one of these talks I've had is, you know, how I need like help filling out the the grant application. Like, is there someone who can walk me through that? Or, you know, based on limited capacity that so many farmers have. And it is, you know, we did our best to make the app simple. But, you know, after that conversation, I got to thinking about that and we were able to put together a list of people who can help you complete this grant and that is on the website it's in the FAQ document for this grant we've got a whole list of people around the state who can help farmers put the put their application together so yeah 
That's fantastic. And I'm really glad to hear that because I, I think that that is a big barrier is the the actual nitty gritty of filling out the paperwork, right? It's not just knowing about the opportunity, but then mm-hmm. uh, yeah, being able to follow through. So that's awesome. Yeah. It, yeah. And this one does get a little technical. It's the application is going to be first come first serve. So we really want people to be prepared with that application when it, when it opens this first cycle. January 4th and the next cycle, July 1st. We've got two different ways to apply online. One is just email. So keeping it real simple. If you're, you know, working with someone who can help you put the application together in advance, then email it in when the application opens. Or we also have an online form. Again, we've kept it pretty simple. You don't have to register or create an account or anything. It's just a form that'll be linked on the website. Awesome. Yeah, that's really helpful because I know even when I've been looking at some other stuff through MDA, yeah, you have to create an account. Yeah. <laughs> you've got all the numbers right and it can yeah, it can be confusing yeah. for people. So that's really awesome. I'm so glad to hear about the the email option because I think that for a lot of people I've worked with, that's that's the best way to communicate. Yeah, definitely feedback we've received and also something I remember from my farmer's market days. Not everyone is in the office all day like me. We got to remember that. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So then transitioning to one last um, exciting thing, uh, because there are many that MDA is working on. I wanted to talk a little bit about the local food purchase assistance program. Because this is another one that is fairly recent. It's really exciting. I mean, the staff who I've met who've been working on this project, they're really excited about it. So I would be curious to know, like, what is this? And again, like more of the details about who's eligible and, and timeline, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I can I can speak more about this because I am part of that group. And I have to give credit, like you say, Emily, to uh, other staff members who are working on this program. That is Alex Cortez, Val Gamble, and Lebo Moore. And I'm sure I'm forgetting other folks, so I apologize. But the Local Food Purchase Assistance Program, this, this really centers around buying food from socially disadvantaged and emerging farmers and distributing that food to what the USDA calls underserved communities throughout Minnesota. And those are are really primarily USDA definitions. This is funded by cooperative agreements between the Department of Agriculture and the federal United States Department of Agriculture or USDA. So the acronym LFPA, Local Food Purchase uh, Assistance Program, we have cooperative agreements. There, there are cooperative agreements also that have been signed between USDA and tribal nations, right, within the graphic boundaries of, of Minnesota. So tribal nations apply for, applied, some of them have applied for this separately, but also our application from the MDA, we are, we are open to if there's tribal communities who are interested in applying for, these, for, for this opportunity, we're, we're happy to work with them. So the, the Department of Agriculture received 3.82 million, which will be available through September 15 
of 2024. So currently these funds will be available through what we're calling a competitive requisition for application process, which that's, we're focusing that to open up January, 2023. And what is gonna be new to your listeners and, and to a lot of us, a lot of folks who are gonna be listening to this is think as, as recent as just last week, the USDA announced additional funding for this program so what that means is we at the Department of Agriculture, we are currently exploring the possibility of applying for an agreement to amend and request for additional funds and more time to work through that. So what that looks, we may look like is having maybe three years versus two years to, to have this funding, go, to go through this funding. So there's going to be more to come on that. But this, the, so we, we've, we had very good uh, input sessions for this program and, and actually your, your your colleagues, Emily, we this was one of those areas we were very intentional in making sure that we reached out to the working group and they came in and we you know had conversations on what their feedback was, how do we do this, how do we build this? And then of course also a lot of other stakeholder participation from the general public on a wide range of, of issues for on, on how we, we program this. So some of those frequently mentioned topics that you were talking about or questions included the ability of organizations to apply for more than once to the program, which yes, they can. And then the types of food that can be purchased with this funding, which is anything that is considered food, not processed, but, but food. So this includes meat, dairy, of course, produce as well. And then of course, the other questions were the geographic boundaries for sourcing the food, which, you know, we, based on these sessions we've had, there's been a lot of conversations on whether can source outside Minnesota within 400 miles, which is something that the USDA puts to, you know, is one of those requirements, you know, to source within 400 miles. And then also ways to encourage applicants who have never worked with us before, like we're talking here, on, on how they can actually access this opportunity and funding available also for the administrative work for this grant, both for those who are going to apply for it, but also uh, for the MDA. And what is going to be that long-term impact of the program on local and regional food? Because that is something that the USDA, but also us at MDA, we're very interested in, in making sure that there's going to be a creation of those uh, local regional food networks. So overall, there's, there's a lot of excitement on this program from stakeholders and a lot of farmers. And we know that there will be a lot for us to learn in this first round that we're implementing this program in Minnesota. But nevertheless, we're very excited to, to get started and to keep building on that. Definitely. And I think what's really cool about this is I think one of the first things that came to my mind when I started to learn about sort of the design of this program is this idea of the circular economy. And this is a, a concept that I'm just fascinated by. And I remember even back in community college, I took a whole class on this topic and we were kind of looking at, you know, the applications of this idea of, of the circular economy to all of these different sectors and, and aspects of our lives. And really the idea is that you know, you're creating these closed loop systems so that whatever you are creating, it it has a, a home, right? Sort of the cradle to cradle model of from the onset of design, 
you've taken into account all of the waste streams, right? Like where this stuff is going, you've designed it in a way that maybe there's parts that are replaceable versus going into the trash. And when I think about the way that this has been designed, it's, you know, supporting underserved communities by purchasing from them, but then also the distribution is happening there. And I think that that's where oftentimes like our markets can kind of be distorted in a way that, you know, all of this energy is focused in these big urban places and then sort of rural communities are considered secondary when it comes to like supply chains and, and all of these things and, and pricing, you know, is, is higher because you have these additional transportation costs. And so it's exciting for me to think about how this is challenging some of the, the norms around how we think about markets and selling and like, what is a viable market, right? Like why shouldn't rural communities be prioritized to be able to have good fresh food as opposed to you're the last stop, you know, on our route. So that like, that excites me a lot just because I live and work in rural communities and, and those are the people that I serve the most. And yeah, we're, I think a lot of us are are just excited about this opportunity and, and there's a lot of coordination I think that has to happen as well in terms of partners and stakeholders. And, and I'm excited to even think about, you know, how can I help others map out what this project could look like and all of the people that need to be in conversation with each other in order for it to, to go smoothly. So yeah, like you said, it's going to be a learning curve, I think for everybody starting out, but I love that, that MDE is looking at potentially applying for an adjustment to that, to be able to increase some of that funding and, and maybe extend the timeline. Cause that's the thing, right? You're dealing with the growing season and mm-hmm. then the funding cycle, right? And trying to make sure that those all line up and that can be really hard sometimes. Exactly. You you hit all those points uh, on the head, Emily, because the growing season, right? That, that already was giving us a little bit of, you know, anxiety because, you know, our farmers just have so much time to, to grow food. So, you know, if you extend this, which we're very appreciative of the USDA doing that, then that gives us that opportunity. But the other point you make, which I think is really great, is Minnesotans are very, very much interested and a lot of, you know, consumers are interested in knowing where their food comes from, right? Yeah, tracking food and, and you know, those distribution channels from out of state or out of the country and all that. That's great. That's part of markets and opportunities. But what about local? You know, what about, you know, like you're saying, you know, rural Minnesota and others from Virginia to North Branch to where to central Minnesota, south. We This is this is a great opportunity because it's going to develop those relationships and, and those systems. You know, like you're saying, if somebody's good at transportation or somebody's good at distribution or sourcing, the outreach that's going to happen and farmers knowing each other and knowing who does what and where and how we can all uh, coordinate to to be successful. I think that's going to be great. The other point is a lot of farmers, especially emerging farmers, like you're saying about markets, right? Sometimes, or even going to access resources, there's sometimes some requirements that some, is a challenge sometimes. You don't have a history of having a market. You don't have a history of selling or producing or, or distributing. This is going to give, I think, a lot of farmers that opportunity to build that, that capacity or to build that within their resume or their portfolio so that if they have to go out and source other markets or, or, or venture out, that opportunity will be there. So we hope that this is going to be sustainable because that is the other thing at the back of our minds is, is this going to be sustainable and how do we make sure this is sustainable? But I think out of this, our hope is we can gather during our evaluation process, we can get some good feedback and data that we can then go back, go to the legislature and say, okay, 
maybe let's talk about the Minnesota case. This was federal funding, but let's see how we can make sure that we continue to support farmers. So how do we build systems that continue to promote this regional food systems network? Amen. <laughs> okay, so last question, because you are on the Transcendent Farmer podcast, I would love for each of you to just share what does it mean to you to be a transcendent farmer? I was thinking about this question earlier today and not not totally sure if I'm on the right path here, but I bet that's part of the fun. I was thinking about being transcendent and like going beyond and, you know, whether farmers are doing it intentionally or without actively practicing, I think that so many of them go beyond by like building communities and relationships and I know one farmer once told me you know the vendors at the farmer's market crowd our tables so we never eat alone and I just that's something I'll always remember it was really powerful to be able to touch people's lives in that way I love that I think I would I would look at a transcendent farmer as someone who is not really interested in agriculture per se, maybe because they don't know what agriculture is or what it has to offer, not just themselves, but their communities. But I look at someone who is given the tools to be able to understand how they can be a, go from a consumer to a producer and add value to the baseline economy of Minnesota or whichever state they may happen to reside in and allow themselves to be a part of that ecosystem and improving the lives of others every day. Nice. And so I'm going to bring out the activist in me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Emily will understand this, but I, I, I look at a transcendent farmer, and I mean, all of you, I'm sure will, disrupting our systems, right? And disrupting in a good way, challenging our systems. We have a lot of new farmers, new Americans, farmers who are bringing in new pallets and new products and new, new things on, on, on perhaps even growing techniques or, or what those foods mean to them in their cultures, but also how those foods can, can be equally very nourishing and important and healing to us as a community, as a Minnesota community. So for me, that is a transcendent farmer, you know, and, and for us as, as those who work in these spaces, is that intentional engagement with, with everyone and all those folks who may not necessarily speak your language or look like you or you understand what their farming philosophy is but they're contributing to this space and and that is that goes beyond a lot of communities including our veterans who want to get into farming you have a lot of people who are perhaps not like the Amish Mennonite communities who don't use technology how about them you know what are we doing to make sure that we are bringing them all into this conversation and making sure that they are contributing to this entire food space and agriculture space. So for me, that is that is kind of what I think of when you asked about the transcendent farmer. 
I love it. Yes. So good. Challenging systems. No, it's, it's great because I think everyone sort of interprets that in their own way. And that's the point, right. Is to, to think about where you can go with that. So I know over the course of the conversation, you all have mentioned different programs and things that people can get involved in, and we will make sure that those get thrown in the show notes so that you can follow up, find out about the grant programs. We'll make sure that everyone's email addresses are also included. But if anyone wants to wrap up with sort of a last call to action for our listeners, please do so. I think think the main thing that I would like to mention is that for those who do not know is that We have an agriculture census that comes out every five years. The last one was in 2017, and the new one started in November of this year, and it goes to April of 2023. So please sign up. Make sure that, you know, we know who you are and making sure that you are being heard. And that's really where this ag census is really about. So if you want to know more information, we'll definitely let you know. Emily knows all about this. And that's the only plug that I have. My plug is just to thank you, Emily, and thank, of course, Jenny and Assistant Commissioner Bailey. And and to say that the, the Department of Agriculture is doing a lot of work. And I think I can say that we are intentional in addressing these equity issues that, that, that we know that are upon us. We are not perfect. There's a lot of work that we still have to do. And I I know we're going to have a lot of missteps. We've had missteps, but we keep growing and we keep learning. But what what I really appreciate is the intentionality of the agency to work through this. And I'm calling on all of us out there, farmers and stakeholders, to join in this effort and not not to be afraid to give us that feedback, however difficult it may be for us, but that is how we're gonna grow as an agency. Uh, And we do have a phone number uh, for the Emerging Farmers Office, which I will provide and can be shared. It's 651-201-6200. And those are some ways that we're trying to make sure that we, we reach folks and that we're listening to folks and that we're being very intentional in making sure that the programs that we're designing that those programs are working for everyone to have that viable economic opportunity into agriculture if that is what they desire. So thank you. Thanks, Lillian. All right. Well, you heard it, folks. We know where to go for all the information now. I just want to thank you again, Patrice, Jenny, Lillian, so much light and love to you for your time and the work that you are doing. The state of Minnesota is better because of it. And I'm so excited to see where all of this goes. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Transcendent Farmer podcast. If you love this conversation as much as we did, feel free to share the love by passing it along to a friend or fellow farmer and be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Until next time, friends.